We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place exclusive interviews with players coaches and team executives streaming live and always available on demand stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the odyssey app while we are definitely seeing covid flare-ups all across the area here in new york it's nothing like what we went through back in april thousands of new cases every day hundreds of people dying each day just here in New York State. And while we are no doubt seeing an uptick in positive cases now... And there's many people in public health who are tracking this closely who think that uh, we're not going to get up to those levels again. But that's where the good news ends. For those tiring of life under a pandemic... How long do you think it's going to take before we can get back to what we consider normal? Two to three years. Two to three years. This week on 880 In-Depth, the slow and painful climb out of the COVID-19 hole. I'm Tim Sheld from WCBS News Radio 880, and I agree with the politicians on this. Let's listen to the science, be guided by the experts. Which is why we went back to our trusted friend and 880 in-depth podcast regular, Dr. Erwin Redliner. For those who don't know... So I'm Erwin Redliner. I'm the founding director of the National Center for Disaster Preparedness and director of the um, Pandemic Initiative. And I'm a senior research scholar at Columbia University. Our Peter Haskell spent time with Dr. Redliner this week. Because we have questions. Consider that we are seeing flare-ups across the map in the greater New York area. They are involving religious communities, colleges and universities. We even saw a super-spreader Sweet 16 party on Long Island. And these surges are causing concern still among government officials. Listen to what Andrew Cuomo told CBS Sunday Morning last week on the release of his new book, Leadership in the COVID-19 Pandemic. Oh, there's no victory here. The game isn't over. This is halftime in the game. Let's learn the lesson from the first half of the game and play a better second half. But we have to play a whole second half of this game. Which is why Peter Haskell spent time on the phone this week with Dr. Erwin Redletter. Doctor, we are seeing a spike in COVID cases in some New York City neighborhoods right now. Is this a surge? Um, it is a, you know, the, the whole question of whether we're dealing with a surge, whether we're dealing, whether we're on the uh, doorstep of a second wave or a continuation of the first wave, there's a lot of semantic challenges here. But we, 
you know, we are definitely seeing on a local level in particular neighborhoods in New York something that could be called a surge and should be called a surge. Um, is it a second wave? You know, nobody really knows for sure. We haven't even really defined what that means. But, uh, yeah, I think we're seeing an uptick that we have to pay attention to. And I think if you want to call that a surge in these areas in the city, I think that's completely reasonable. So over the past three weeks, the state has been over a thousand positive cases almost every day. Over the past four weeks, hospitalizations have doubled. What does this tell you? This tells me that we're very far from over with the uh, pandemic in New York. So it tells me that um, our guard has to be up and we have to make double and triple certain sure that uh, we the hospitals are prepared. We, we are definitely uh, in a situation that we have to pay a lot of attention to. And one of the things I think that is clear is that we don't want a repeat of uh, March and April and May when we had... Uh, huge problems in New York. New York was the epicenter of the world um, pandemic in terms of cases, hospitalizations, and fatalities. And one of the uh, things that we have to make sure about is that we're prepared sufficiently, that our stockpiles of uh, PPE, not just the kind of uh, face masks that we uh, in the general public are wearing when we're out and about, but the, uh, you know, the, the N95 masks, the shields, the hospital gowns, the respirators, And I think the hospitals are, in fact, paying attention to this. And um, um, I know for a fact that uh, many of the major hospital systems, if not all of them, um, have been thinking a lot about being ready for a second um, phase or wave or whatever it might be that um, will require them to uh, gear up again. And some of the hospitals are, in fact, already limiting uh, elective admissions to the hospital to make sure that the bed capacity is where it needs to be. I think the underlying problem, Peter, is that um, there's still many, many vulnerable people who have never had uh, COVID before who are susceptible to getting the virus and getting very sick from it. And part of the um, challenges is that now we're, you know, if you, if you think about the fact that we're reopening businesses, that kids are back in school, at least in a, in a hybrid fashion, is that we have the potential for uh, uh, significant rises in the number of cases um, in New York, hospitalized, fatalities to a certain degree, and uh, and just people testing positive. I want to just uh, run over some of the numbers. So as of the other day in New York City, 442 people hospitalized. In mm-hmm. April, that number was 12,000. So we're a long way from April. Do you have concerns we're going to get anywhere close to the 12,000 number. And based on what we've learned about treating people, to expect these kind of death tolls, multiple hundreds, nearly 800 in New York State one day? Yeah. Um, You know, this is a question that I think uh, we don't really have an answer to. Uh, I certainly don't. It's very, it is extremely difficult to predict. And there's many people in public health who are tracking this closely who think that, uh, we're not going to get up to those levels again. And that has to do with maybe better prepared, better preparation in the hospitals, uh, the demographics of who's getting the, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus has changed. It's, it's now uh, heavily focused on younger people than it was originally. And the fatality rates as a percentage of people 
who actually test positive is dropping, and it's mostly because we're dealing with younger people um, who don't have the risk factors who are healthier than the uh, older population with pre-existing conditions. So I think uh, predicting this, of course, is uh, is very difficult, but I, but I think that we will not see that rate of hospitalizations and fatalities, even if we're seeing a significant surge in the number of positive cases. Saying that, I am not gonna I, I'm not gonna bet the ranch on that actually being the fact the case because we could have a mutating strain, a different strain that can make people sick in different ways from uh, COVID. But I think right now the evidence suggests that we we're not gonna have the hospitalization and fatality rate that we saw during the first uh, incredible explosion of uh, uh, COVID nineteen in New York. We are seeing in certain neighborhoods in the city and in Rockland and Orange that they've basically reimposed a shutdown. Under what circumstances might there be a citywide shutdown? And do we need to go citywide or can we pick where these clusters are, shut down there, leave everybody open? And is there generally a way to avoid this kind of thing? It's hard to say, and I, I hate to keep saying that it's hard to say, but it is because, um, you know, none of us really live in a bubble. Even isolated communities of different racial, ethnic, or religious uh, concentrations, you can't. The city functions as a heterogeneous whole, meaning that um, we can't we can't completely avoid uh, interacting with one another. So even if you live in a deeply religious, uh, ultra-Orthodox community in Brooklyn, let's say, you still have stores and shops and people come in there to deliver things and uh, teachers may come from other parts of the city in in the uh, religious schools. Um, And, you know, people who live in those communities may work in other places that often do around the city. So it's a very complex challenge to try to... uh, even imagine that we could uh, live under little micro bubbles in various communities where there's an uptick. So, if it gets bad enough, uh, it you know it would be foolish not to understand that it's possible that we could end up in a situation where the state, the city, have to shut shut us down again. Um, so, yeah, it's unfortunately an unknown. But I just think the main t- main point here is that we're not isolated even if we live in a community generally surrounded by people who uh, have the same beliefs that we do. It's just impossible uh, to keep us completely isolated. Based on where we've been and what we've learned, do you think a citywide lockdown is less likely now? I don't, I wouldn't say likely, Peter. I would say possible. And we need to be prepared um, that uh, that we could experience a, a big uh, surge again. And by the way, it would not be just in New York either. I'm worried about many parts of the country. So depending on what happens politically, interestingly, on November 3rd, uh, we could have much more serious, stronger, and reinforced policies coming from the federal government that we don't have any of right now. So the decisions about the city are actually being made by this complex uh, struggle between the state and the city right now to try to figure out who's in charge and who makes the calls and so on. So um, 
So specifically, let me not beat around the bush here. If Biden wins, uh, I think we can expect the policies about what to close, where to close, when to close, uh, will be much more um, defined by the federal government than uh, state and local uh, authorities, including in New York. Now, on the other hand, we do have a federal system of government, and there's a lot of responsibility that gets pushed down from the from the federal government to the states. So it's not like it would instantly change to you know orders from the from the feds, but uh, I think we'd be in a different environment where the guidance for when to close and what to do will come from on high, um, certainly in relationship to what we're experiencing now. Being in the city, we know that in the height of this thing, people really paid attention and followed the rules. And I don't have to tell you, summer came, people just got tired of complying with these very strict rules. How do we convince people without badgering them and threatening them that this is something we need to do for the public good? Right. So you're you just bring up a very important point because this is a challenge. This is the kind of challenge that we've experienced before, um, even before uh, the uh, uh, COVID-19 appeared on our, uh, in our midst. And um, so I'm talking, for example, about immunizing against measles, which uh, for quite a few years has been a problem, a challenge, and it's a challenge of messaging. It's a challenge of, of, of uh, trying to deal with people's very, fundamental ideological and philosophical uh, concerns about vaccines and do they cause uh, other issues and um, there's people that just you know the anti what I'm getting at is the anti-vax movement in the United States and by and worldwide by the way um, is a real problem so you're talking what you're, you're the question you're asking is how do we get people to be compliant with anything that's in the public health uh, interest in, in the public and the health interests of the public and it's very tough. I don't know that we have the answer to the question that you're asking. It's one of the most important questions that we could possibly ask. And by the way, it also applies to if, if and when we get a vaccine uh, for COVID-19, will people even take that vaccine? And then what you brought up, will people, if things start to get bad again, will people comply with staying in, sheltering in place, wearing masks, social distancing, all of that? And there's definitely a pandemic fatigue that has set in that will affect people's willingness, not their ability, but their willingness to comply with these public health guidelines. And it's a it's a complex problem, and I don't know uh, if we'll be able to do that effectively and in large enough numbers that uh, you know it'll it'll actually bring the um, pandemic under control. You brought up vaccines. Let's talk a little bit about that. There are different trials going on. Johnson and Johnson's trial was paused because of an adverse reaction. Yeah. When a vaccine comes out, a couple of things. First of all, would you trust it? And and once people who are willing to trust vaccines do trust them, how long is this going to take? There are a lot of people in this country and in this city, yeah. How, yeah. What, is, what is going to be involved in this? So let's say we have, so there are four main contenders uh, to get the vaccine out first. Um, and uh, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson's efforts were both put on uh, pause. 
Pfizer and Moderna, two other companies, have not had that kind of adverse reaction so far. But don't forget, both of those companies' vaccine products require two doses and incredibly low sub-zero temperatures for storage and transport of the vaccine and so on. Um, so let's say we do have a vaccine that appears safe enough, and we should discuss what I mean by that, but um, and it, it is available by the end of uh, this year. So the first thing is that some number of vaccines will be manufactured and available, and the first priority will be uh, first responders, essential workers, you know, healthcare workers and all that. Um, but the question is, when will we have enough capacity, enough distribution capabilities um, to actually be available to everybody else? And that is simply not going to happen before the middle of, towards the end of uh, 2021. So we're dealing with a situation that we're not talking about a vaccine available for you and me around the corner. Uh, we're talking about a vaccine that is uh, uh, more, if it's working, if it's safe and so on. Uh, I would not expect you to be able to get a vaccine or me or my family uh, before that time period. And not everybody's going to take it, right? So um, we're going to have a huge public messaging job to convince people that it's okay to take it. And every time we get a pause... Uh, let's say this recent one for, for Johnson & Johnson, that gives fuel to the anti-vaxxers to say, look, it's not safe. And even our conversation right now about it might make pe people nervous about it. But I would say that uh, if the FDA, uninfluenced by the White House, says this one's safe and uh, it certainly works, uh, yes, the answer is I would personally take it. And... Um, you know, I'm in an age group, and uh, I have some pre-existing conditions, which would make me a candidate for wanting to get a vaccine uh, sooner rather than later. Erwin Redletter is not just a health advocate. He's a medically trained pediatrician. He's a disaster preparedness expert. And we've come to know him over the years as a trusted social scientist who has dedicated his life to bettering the health circumstances of his community with a special focus on children. It's why we wanted to hear his take on how we're doing on the reopening of schools. In, in terms of the lockdown, you know, there's so much controversy about the schools in the city, but the fact is there have been, from my understanding, no outbreaks or serious problems in schools. So a couple of things. Why is that? And what does that tell us about the ability to have other kinds of indoor activities? So first of all, we don't know what the situation is in the, in the schools because children can definitely carry uh, the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19. And we're not doing enough testing in schools to know how many asymptomatic carriers we have. Those carriers, let's say your you know, third grader or ninth grader is a carrier without symptoms and has not been tested, which is gonna be the case for a long time that a lot of children won't be tested. They're gonna go home and they're gonna uh, potentially infect older people, other people, parents, grandparents, etc., And uh, in the general community that they're gonna be walking around as spreaders not necessarily super spreaders, but as people that would uh, be a, uh, a pandemic threat to others. So I wouldn't look at the fact that we're not seeing a lot of children unless they're getting very sick and hospitalized. That was not the worry. 
though some children do get sick, and there's been some reported fatalities, but a very small number, really, very, very small number. So that's not what we're worried about. I'm worried about that uh, kids in school will be increasingly infected, become carriers, and become uh, the uh, point of, uh, of uh, reactivation of community spread. So I think it's going to take a little while to figure out what the role is of children and children who get infected. Um, and uh, we're not going to know that without doing a whole lot more testing than we're currently doing. The weather is already getting cooler as it gets colder still. What impact is that going to have, A, on the transmission of the virus, and B, in terms of behavior with more people inside? And yeah. what might the impact be there? So, as you know, um, being inside versus outside is a huge difference, and especially since we don't know uh, about the uh, quality and effectiveness of ventilation systems in a lot of our indoor spaces, let's say restaurants, um, those can become, you know, fire starters as well. And, um, you know, I noticed that, at least in New York, that we're seeing more of these outdoor restaurants uh, putting up uh, outdoor heaters and uh, trying to extend the amount of time where people could eat uh, outside if they're going to the restaurant. That, that's all going to be happening, but it won't be happening everywhere. And I think we're going to see uh, a lot of closures of businesses. Um, we already have many uh, that are shut down in New York City and will not be reopening. But I see more of the same coming uh, during the winter. The winter is an interesting thing. The question is, will we see... Um, surges that are related to the weather, you know, the answer to that is maybe, but, you know, nobody's really quite sure about that. But I think the the problem will be if we do more indoor activities, uh, that becomes, uh, as I say, the uh, initiating factors that could see a big jump in cases. Uh, And by the way, I don't want to take this lightly or seem to be taking it lightly because the economy needs to get back in gear it's like kids need to go to school so we have to figure out how to make all that stuff happen but you know the other day over the weekend i was uh, walking around the city in a couple of places that you know and i'm sure this is your experience too peter and everybody else is that oh my goodness this store just closed this little deli just closed this is the these are the places that made the economy of new york run and i was thinking about you know where are the cashiers the cooks the people that provided those services, are they getting unemployment? How are they surviving? Where are they going to get another job? So this is entirely complicated, and uh, the there are really some catastrophic consequences to the shutdown. So I'm personally hoping we can avoid it, but we're inevitably going to end up in, the, end up in this conflict between the public's health and the health of our uh, you know economy and uh, education systems and so on. So I think the winter is an unknown. You know, uh, the famous line from uh, the Game of Thrones, winter is coming, applies here. And that means that uh, we're going to have to just see what happens, track the cases, and do what we have to do. But it may well be that what we're going to have to do this winter, if we get a severe surge, which I think is highly possible, is to go back into shutdown mode. Your earlier question is, will people comply are they just too tired of all this and uh, won't really listen? Uh, remains to be seen. One other thing about indoor uh, retail restaurants, 
The schools have done very limited testing, but the numbers that have come out have shown a positivity rate of under 1%. Does that not indicate that we can have greater capacity at stores or restaurants or other indoor places? Um, it, you know, the, the numbers that we're getting, first of all, the testing of school children is extremely erratic. And um, it, I don't know that we have a full picture of what's happening in terms of asymptomatic carriers, which is what I'm concerned about. And um, I think we'll just have to see. We need we need rapid point-of-care tests that can get results in a few minutes. So that means that we'd be able to test a lot more children a lot more regularly. And, and actually, the trends are now uh, rising for the number of uh, cases that are positive. And that is something, it's basically just a question now of following up uh, and tracking the data very closely. I wish we were doing a more formal and more regular uh, testing so we could really see what's happening. But um, it's, uh, you know, it's just going to be the absolute necessity to follow all this as closely as possible. Here's the $64,000 question, and it's a difficult one, but how long do you think it's going to take before we can get back to what we consider normal? Two to three years. Two to three years. Mm -hmm. Why yes. is that? Well, because if we don't completely crush this, um, and, you know, we're going to be looking at lingering consequences or maybe surges or maybe mutations that will continue to be part of our culture. When, and I don't think this is a binary question, Peter. It's not, will we be back to normal or won't we? Because I think there are things now uh, that make us believe it's possible that certain things will just do routinely um, because we won't completely eradicate the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And uh, we'll be taking precautions for a long time, you know, hand washing, the use of face masks, the uh, need to get all of our ventil indoor ventilation systems upgraded, um, and uh, how much contact we have with others. I mean, when is it going to be safe to resume all of that? It's going to be very much a staggered uh, situation where certain things will open. We've got to get Broadway back open, but I think it was just recently announced that they're closed until... Uh, January or something of that order, and um, but we need those we need those cultural institutions back, um, and it just certain things are going to take longer than others. So let's say you have a theater and the in a particular theater where the ventilation is horrible, and it's going to have to be replaced or redone, um, and we're still going to be wanting to keep people separate and not being able to uh, you know sell every seat in the house. Those kinds of things will be the lingering consequences of a virus that remains in many respects a mystery, and especially predicting the future about it is going to be um, you know, very difficult. Dr. Redliner, is there anything else you want to add that we haven't talked about? Yeah, uh, so I want to say it's very important that all of us, everybody in the public, uh, pay attention to the public health messages. And, and we have to be patient. We have to find joy, happiness, and fulfillment in an environment that's very different because of this pandemic. But I think we're capable of doing that. And, you know, if you think about some of the uh, events that people have had to endure and suffer through over time, from world wars to the uh, 
Great Depression, the, the, the Dust Bowl uh, in the Midwest that we experienced in the 30s in the U.S. These are things that did not go away uh, in a matter of weeks or months. These were years. And people have to adapt. And by the way, lingering the wings uh, are the issues around climate change. Um, and the regular, the other non-COVID disasters, from wildfires to uh, uh, stronger and more frequent hurricanes, and so on. I think the issue of resilience that we all need to have individually and as a society, um, and tolerance, and in, and being innovative and creative in how we're living our lives. I think we have to get through it, but I don't think this is necessarily going to be a short-term situation that's magic, magically. Uh, going to disappear in the ways some of the ways that the president has been talking about since it's this is this began in terms of changing the weather or uh hydroxy uh, chloroquine and other things there's no magic cure here for this and we will have to be patient and resilient and, and adaptive over time Our thanks to Dr. Erwin Redliner for his continued help in honestly breaking down the complexities of this pandemic. 880 In-Depth is a weekly production of WCBS News Radio 880. Executive producers are Peter Haskell and myself, Tim Scheld. We do it weekly, and we encourage you to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Just search wherever you get your podcasts for 880 In-Depth. Thank you and be safe. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See t